jumping in straight off, right out of the gate this morning. I want you to see what one scholar says about our passage this morning. Here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, really the second half, he says, through verse 22 is by all accounts the most difficult passage to interpret in 1 Peter. Some say the entire New Testament. So buckle in. So for the next four hours, we're going to take verse by verse, just a verse an hour. Um, we're going to, we have dinner being catered in. It's all right. You know what you were signing up for. Some of you are like, that's the last time I'm coming to church. Um, okay. So that's, this is where we're going. We're stepping into one of the most difficult passages of 1 Peter, and some scholars say the entire New Testament. But before we deal with the passage itself, that is, before we actually dig in, let's just set the stage for where we've been, because it's really important to understand where the passage is taking us. So for the last several weeks, we've been in this section of 1 Peter where this really, uh, this repetitive message has uh, come to us over and over, and that is endure and do good. You endure unjust suffering, and you keep doing good, and you, while you're doing all of that, you're trusting God to take care of you. You do that when you're living in a pagan society that's on a downward trend. You do that while, while you're in the workplace. You do that under civil government. You do that in a marriage, particularly, he says, a wife with an unbelieving spouse. And you do that when you're being insulted. When you're being insulted. And all of those, all those arenas of life, you endure. You just keep taking one step after another. You get up. You go to work. You keep doing the hard thing, even when you're suffering unjustly. And you keep doing good. And, all, and along the way, in every one of those arenas, you trust that God will take care of justice. He will make sure all things work to those, uh, to the good of those who love Him. You just keep trusting Him. So that's been this resounding message. And then last week we noticed that Peter had this extra command he wanted them to make sure to be ready for. That is, when people watch you, when people watch you living that way, that is, enduring suffering, unjust suffering, and yet you continue to do good, trust God will take care of you, will take care of this situation. When people watch you doing that, they're going to look at you and say, why? Like, why are you, why do you continue to live this way? And he says, you be ready. When someone asks you why, you give them a reason for the hope you have. You be ready to give them an answer to the hope you have. All right. It's right after all of that we come to this most difficult passage of Scripture. We pick up, we're going to pick up in verse 17. I just want to give us context. I just want to give us context. Here it is. Verse 17, we pick up. For it is better if by God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He's put to death. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It is only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. 
It is it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. It is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Sorry, I'm trying to communicate a message. Okay, I'm so sorry. We've talked about it three dozen times. So this is the most difficult passage, and I think you see right out of the gate, right out of the gate, where the problem is. There's all these questions about this proclamation to spirits in prison. What is all of this? Here's a set of questions I think we we would have to answer. Where did Jesus go after he was made alive? What did he say? Who did he say it to? And who are these imprisoned spirits? What is going on? Well, before we answer that, what I want to do is I want to I want to step back because what often happens is that we try to answer these most difficult questions of who these spirits are, where's Jesus going, what is he saying. We try to figure out all the details of this very unclear part of the passage, and we miss the very point Peter's trying to make. So think of it like a sandwich. Think of the think of the passage like a sandwich. The, the difficult part of the, of the passage is actually in the middle. And, and so there's like bread, bread on both sides of the, of, of the sandwich meat. If you don't have bread, you don't have a sandwich. Okay? Now, you might make lettuce wraps, and you're like, well, I don't use bread anyway. Well, you know, if you don't have something sandwiching the meat, it's just meat. You have to have something putting it, uh, you have to have something that makes it the sandwich. So, what's going to make the center of the path is actually the parts on the outside. Actually, what we might call the bread, uh, the, the lettuce leaves, if you're that kind of person, um, it, it is, is, it's actually the things on the outside of the passage that are most important. It's actually where the heartbeat of the whole passage is. And when we get, when we understand the outside of the passage we're going to understand how it has, what, it, what it's trying to say, what Peter's trying to say in the inside, where, where these, these difficult verses are. Okay, so let's take the outside of the passage. Here's the heartbeat of the passage. This is the thing, that this is the heart of the message. Verse 18 and 22. For he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. I hope you see why that's the heartbeat. Jesus died, and He was made alive, and He's reigning right now over every power and authority. That's the heartbeat of the passage. Christ, too, suffered, and it resulted in victory. Did you see that? Christ suffered, just as these Christians would be suffering. Christ suffered, and it resulted in victory. He vindicated them. And that can also be true of every Christian, if you're linked to Jesus. Here's how one commentator summarizes this. No suffering can thwart God's suffering. Uh, uh, Sorry, (laughs) no suffering can thwart God's purposes. Peter states, for Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. But after he died, God raised him in power and vindicated him, giving us strong hope of the same vindication. When Jesus suffered unjustly, God vindicated him and he will vindicate us too. 
So, so here's how I'm going to summarize it, like Jason style. Very short. Here it is. Here's how I want to take all that and summarize it. Peter is saying this, big picture. Endure suffering, do good, because our sovereign God has won the ultimate victory in Christ. That's the key. Christ suffered. You're suffering. Oh, Christ suffered, and He was made alive. And by the way, not just made alive, He is exalted, He ascended to heaven, and He's reigning over every power and authority. So suffering did not get the best of Him. In the end, justice came. He was vindicated. That is victory. Now what's going to happen next? In between this declaration of Christ's suffering and coming back to life and now ascended, reigning in heaven, that's the victory. And in between this declaration of His victory, Peter's going to now explain the extent of that victory. For Christ and for you and me. Let me just say that one more time. In between this declaration of Christ's victory over his suffering, as he's now going to explain the extent of the victory for Jesus and for us. And here's how he does it. First part of those middle verses that become so difficult to interpret. Here's what he says. Peter says, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay, so there's a lot that could be said here. Literally, volumes have been written on these two verses. Trying to explain what exactly is happening. Where's Jesus going? What's he saying? Who's he preaching to? I'm going with the, the, uh, the, the most um, wide-held view both in early Christianity and even in our day. I'm going with that view. Okay? So I'm letting you know there are many views. I am proposing, and I think that the, the, the actually the widespread view among most scholars in early Christianity, even in our day, that this view explains how it fits within the context. So here's, here's what's happening. Here's the view I want to propose. It's this. After Christ died, now, it's after he either rose or before he ascended to heaven. Okay, we're not exactly sure. That is, was he in the grave? And while he was in the grave, did he, did he go? Or did he come back to life in his body? And then did he go? Or was it in that time where he was like having eaten fish with the disciples on the, on the Sea of Galilee? When he left there, did he, did he move in the spiritual realm as well? What, the point is, though, it's after, it's, it's in this period of bringing being brought back to life. So after Christ died, after He rose, before He ascended to heaven, He traveled to hell and proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. So in, in, in Jewish tradition, as well as early Christian tradition, there was the view that if you had to take an example of immense evil in the spiritual realm, it was just before the flood. Just before the flood, there were demons, there were angels, fallen angels that came to earth and procreated with human women. And out of that relationship came giants. 
Now we go, well, ah, this seems too far-fetched. Isn't this fairy tale stuff? I don't think so. I'm okay believing that this kind of thing can happen. By the way, in, in the classroom, at least for the last hundred years, we have been taught that we came, we came randomly from little amoeba floating in water somewhere. Listen, if, I'm, if, if you and I have emerged randomly through a series of random events over billions of years, then I'm okay believing that there are fallen angels who procreated with women and out of that came some race of giants before the flood. I'm okay with that. Actually, I'm sticking with the fallen angels because I also believe a human being died and came back to life, which is, will also be laughed at in, in certain contexts in our world. All right. So, where is this coming from? There, it's coming, first of all, I want to read you this passage from Genesis chapter 6. This is just before the flood. This sets up the flood. This flood to wipe out evil on the earth. Here it is. Look at how, look at how Moses recorded it. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. The sons of God, ancient Jewish tradition says, these are the fallen angels, the sons of God. There are a lot of reasons for that. We won't go into it. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and the very inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And so God decides we're wiping it out. But the key here is that there is a set of fallen angels, these angels that come and do great evil on the earth. They sin, you might say. Now, this isn't just like an uh, uh, ancient Jewish tradition. Christians picked up this as well to explain some things. I just want to read you two passages. Two passages. This is probably what is in the mind of Jude. Jude is this very, very, very small book. It's like one chapter. That's it. So when you see the reference, it's like Jude verse 6. Because there's one chapter. Jude 6. Here's how Jude describes the judgment that happens in the past. And he's referencing these fallen angels. Here's what he says. The angels, the angels that do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So there is a set of angels who fell and God locked them up. We might say were imprisoned. Peter, interestingly enough, in his second letter, Peter, it's a much larger sentence, so when you see this sentence come up on the screen, just know it is a sentence fragment. So just calm down. I didn't quote the whole passage. But notice how Peter at least sets this in motion, the sentence in motion. He's referring, just like Jude, to this, these angels. Something happened really bad back in the past. Here's what Peter says, 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So it would seem not only does ancient Jewish tradition pick up on this, but actually the inspired writers of the Word of God understand that something very bad happened with angels before the flood. This cohabitating between 
angels, fallen angels, and human beings, and God punished them, imprisoned them. The wicked of the wicked were imprisoned, kept in darkness, awaiting the day of judgment. Okay. So if we put that within the context of 1 Peter, after Jesus was made alive, He went to the wicked of the wicked. And what did He do? He proclaimed victory. He proclaimed victory. Interesting, the word that Paul says, he made proclamation or he proclaimed, is not the same word we would use for evangelize. When you preach the gospel in order to convert someone to Jesus, it's not that word. This is a proclamation to declare something. So the view here is, is that Jesus goes into the spiritual realm and he declares that God the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, has victory over death and sin and evil. So all this suffering that Jesus has suffered results in victory. And how big is that victory? It's so big that He went into the imprisoned realm of those fallen angels and He declared victory. That's how big this victory is. It's not just He came back to life and ate fish with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. No, He went and proclaimed massive victory to the wicked of the wicked. That's a big victory. And so what does that have to do with us? Here's what he says next in the passage. It was only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So now he's finishing this loop with Noah. Because we know these fallen angels were in the days of Noah, which is why ancient Jewish tradition goes back to the flood account. Why ancient Jewish tradition picked up Genesis chapter 6. So if we're back in the days of Noah and there's this immense evil spreading over the earth, Noah had to do what? Endure. Surely enduring suffering. And he had to keep doing good. He had to keep building the ark. He never could give up on that. So he endured and he did good. And what did God do for Noah? He preserved his life. That's what he did. And so, so here Peter is putting these two things together. Not only did Jesus declare, proclaim victory to the wicked of the wicked, those wicked angels from back in the days of Noah, don't you forget that as that wickedness was was thriving and growing, he saved Noah. Just a few. But he saved Noah. Noah endured, he suffered, but God gave him victory. Now, then the question is, what about you and me? And Peter would, you know, for Peter, what about all these Christians he's writing to? Well, he says, you have victory too. And why do you have, how do I know you have victory? He says, because you've been baptized. You've been baptized. Because baptism's the place that you put yourself uh, into, that you are put into, you are put into the ark of Christ for salvation. Did you see what we're saying here? We're saying that Christ is the one that now preserves us. The ark, and I mean literally the ark, that big ark, that thing that someone built a model of in Kentucky, that big ark, okay? That ark was a type, it was a foreshadowing of the salvation that we would find in Christ. 
And so now, and so now, just as Noah was was saved, even in the midst of the flood of water, we now come and we are connected to Christ in the waters of baptism. This is something Paul particularly makes very clear. Check this out. Romans 6. Romans 6, 3-4. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, we baptized in Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. So, Peter can declare with confidence that you get the victory. The same victory Jesus is proclaiming to the wicked of the wicked. The same kind of victory that Noah had when he was, when he was preserved through the flood, through this immense judgment. Noah was saved. You are saved because you have now gone through the same waters. You have gone through the waters of baptism. Here's another way Paul says that. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26 through 27, and there's something really important you've got to grab here. I'll note it. Don't worry, but just stay with me on this one. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, you get in Christ through baptism. Now, it would seem very odd here, wouldn't it? You are saved. You become children of God through but then the next word, the next thing he says, he refers to something they did. That's, that seems odd. I thought we're not saved by works. That's because baptism is not a work. Baptism flows out of faith, and faith is given by God. You can't manufacture that. At least I've never figured out how. If I did... I'd be a rich man because I'd start selling a self-help book on how, to, on how to manufacture faith. You can't manufacture it. It comes from God. And so faith and baptism are intimately connected. You can't just go throw yourself in a baptistry and say, save. No, it is baptism through faith. And wrapped you in Christ. And guess where your perseverance is? Guess where your victory is? It's in Christ. Interestingly, I'm just going to read it. We won't put it back on the screen. I just want to note, when Peter says that baptism now saves you, remember what he says. It's not the removal of dirt from your skin. It's not like just jumping into the tub is the thing that saves you. He says it's the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. That's Peter's way of saying through faith. Baptism saves you through faith. You cannot work your way into salvation. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And baptism is the sign where that all happens. So if you believe, you are baptized. Those go together. We do not see them separated in the New Testament. And so there's this declaration that Christ suffered. And in his suffering, he was given victory. And that victory was so immense. He went to the wicked of the wicked, those fallen angels, that these spirits in prison, these, these disobedient ones from the days of Noah, and he said, victory. 
he proclaimed victory. And just as Noah was also given a victory in the, in the midst of the judgment of the flood, so you and I now get to partake in the same victory. And how do you know that? Because you have been baptized. You have been wrapped in the one who saves you. It is Christ and Christ alone. That's, and that's the message. And just in case you didn't, we, we didn't get it the first time, it's through His resurrection, and through His resurrection, He is reigning. Alright, I'm going to give you a paraphrase. I don't know if I've ever done it this way. This is Jason's paraphrase. So if I like, I just took on the challenge of how would I write this in light of this interpretation? Here's my paraphrase. Here's how I, here's how I would write these verses. Continue to endure and do good. Because you know that Christ also suffered and His suffering resulted in victory over death and sin. He proclaimed His victory to the evil spirits who were active in the days of Noah. And just like Noah was saved, you too are ultimately safe. Because you have been baptized into Christ through faith. He is King, so be confident that He will never let go of you as you endure suffering and do good in the midst of this evil generation. That's how I summarize all that. But I hope you see that the heart of that message is Christ, Christ is victor. And that victory is so big that it was declared to the whole spiritual realm. And you get to partake in it. That's really good news. All right, let's make some application. The first one I think is right out of the gate is be baptized. And I don't want to be glib on this. If you have never been immersed, baptized into Christ, you've been coming for a long time, but if God has opened your eyes of faith and the Word of God is changing your heart, you've been cut to the heart, then I would say to you what someone said to the Apostle Paul after he had the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. So if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for you. If you find yourself here. Here's what was said to Paul. Acts 22.16 And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on His name. That's what I say to you. So like, I'm not going to try, there's, like, I, I'm not going to lay a guilt trip here. God will do all the work He needs to do. But if you've not been immersed, it is time to be baptized if God has pulled your heart in faith. Second one. And I'm just telling you, I'm writing the sermon. I'm getting into the application. And it hits me like a ton of bricks. This one right here. So I literally don't know which one of you need this. But I wrote this for you if you did. God has not left you. Keep enduring and doing good. I am sure there is, at least one of you is struggling with a very difficult situation, either suffering at work, suffering with some type of illness. You are struggling and you're tired of enduring and you wonder what in the world's going on. This passage, I want this passage to be for you. Christ too suffered and God gave him the victory. And the good news of this passage is that victory is for you too. It is for everyone in Christ. So, my, so, so here's what I want you to know. God's not left you. 
like when you wake up tomorrow and you're just tired and you're frustrated and you don't want to go to work and you don't want to deal with, with this or that, but you've got to put one foot in front of the other and you've got to do it while being mindful of God because He's in control, but you just don't want to do it anymore, you remember God has not left you. And the end of the road is victory. It's victory through and through. So don't give up. God is with you. And He really likes you. So I don't know who needs that. Third one. Never forget the Gospel. So there's just just one part of the passage that I didn't touch on. I just didn't want to deal with it until right now. Because I think it's the thing we have to remember. In the midst of all of this, in in the midst of remembering that Christ has the victory. Christ is reigning. That victory is so immense that He preached it to the fallen angels in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And remember, Noah was saved. You are too. In the midst of all of that, He starts this whole thing off by saying this. It was verse 18 where He said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You know where you are in that verse? The unrighteous. That's where you are. That's where my name is. That's the gospel. You and I do not deserve that victory. We don't deserve the extent of that victory. We don't deserve to be connected to the one who gained the victory. We do not have the right to be able to draw near to the one who is reigning, who brings the victory. We don't have a right to any of that because you and I are the unrighteous. I'm assuming all of you have messed up at some point today. That's why you're unrighteous. Because you can't keep the law perfectly. If you could, then you wouldn't need Jesus. You and I need someone. And so every day we remember that whatever good has come into our life, to whatever extent our hearts have healed, and we're making better decisions. To whatever extent we can endure when life really stinks, it is because of Jesus. The righteous one took on our punishment and he gave us his righteousness. So in the end, when you breathe your last breath, you don't have to wonder, did I do enough? No, you get to proclaim he did it all. Isn't that great news? Man, I don't want anyone pointing at me in the end. That's not going to be good. No one wants that. I don't want that. We get to point to Him. The righteous for the unrighteous. So when you're mad at your boss this week, just remember, you're not too great yourself left to your own devices. When you want to, when you want to throw something at the TV screen, when Putin's face comes up on the screen all haughty and arrogant, don't forget, you could be a Putin left to your own devices. Don't forget that we are the unrighteous and there is one who is righteous. Just don't forget that. And if you don't lock on to Jesus, by the way, you'll lock on to someone. We all pick someone. I'm just saying, remember the Gospel. Let us never think too highly of ourselves. Our victory is not our own. We remember the Gospel. Here's the next step. 
I'm hoping that this was a tough one. I thought, man, what do you do with this kind of complicated passage? I think we just take it back to the cross. So here's the next step. Look at the cross each day and pray this prayer or some version of it. He won. I'm on his team. I follow him. I follow him today. Like literally, this needs to like be a daily thing. So today you remember Christ won the victory. So no matter what your suffering is, you know it's going to end okay. And you say, okay, he won and I'm on his team. So if I'm on his team, then I want to be, I'm going to be on the winning team. The only thing I can think of that this might be comparable to is who doesn't want to be on, on Chapel Hill's team this morning? Who doesn't want to be on that team? Man, they whoop Duke. We have some in the crowd that don't agree. I was trying, just trying to be relevant, trying to be relevant. Um, but go Tar Heels. All right, that's for you, Abby. That's, that's for you guys. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. But look at the cross. Look at the cross. And I, and I don't mean this, like, don't make this over-spiritual. Don't over-spiritualize this thing. Like, when you're driving by the church this week, look at the cross. If you have a painting, look at the cross. You know, I have this favorite painting of my looking at it while I was writing the sermon. Elena Crowe painted this wonderful painting. And it's got the three crosses in, 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 the, in the sunset. And I just looked at that and I said, oh my God, like, like really, like, the only reason I have life is because He took for me what I deserve. Praise God. Praise God. You know what it reminded me of? Hey, Jason, you're not so good. You're not so, you're not so cool. You actually are the unrighteous. And He took it in your place. And so we just keep remembering it. And he, I'm on His team. And because I'm on His team, I'm going to follow Him. I'm following the winner. Not winners. I'm following the winner. All right. So look at a cross each day. Put it on the back. Put it on the background of your phone. Put it on your hand. Put a tattoo on your forearm. I mean, whatever you need to do. Put it on your forehead. George, put it on his forehead. But make sure you're looking at the cross and remember who you are and whose you are and where victory is. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of such a complicated passage, we see Your work. We see the victory You accomplished through Christ. And we praise You for the righteous One who died for the unrighteous. And He is now reigning in heaven over every power and authority in the spiritual realm. And we look forward to the day when His reign expands in every way and there is no more death, no more evil, no more tears. So help us to get a vision for that day. And we will stay locked with You. You will never let go of us even if we have to wake up tomorrow and go to a job we don't like or deal with a boss that's mean or struggle in a marriage that's hard or live in a society that is increasingly evil. We will endure. We will do good. All by your power. We will follow Him who has the victory. We pray all that under His authority. Together we say, Amen.